Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. I got married when I was 23, and I've always wanted to be a father. And I had, you know, plans and goals of how my kids were going to do this. But it's like calling is dynamic because you have to factor in the providence of God. How are we going to leverage the freedoms that we have instead of lamenting the privileges or the gifts that we don't have? All right, so I'm here with Kate Shellnut, our associate editor online. And I'm here with Richard Clark, and you're the host of this show. And I'm the host of this show. I will say that I'm visiting CT because I work remotely, and I'm here once a month. One of my favorite things to do when I get here is to run up to the design offices and sneak a peek at the cover of the issue. And I just peeked at the cover of the issue. It's beautiful. It's really good. And it's the kind of thing that I do want people to be able to get their hands on and get it... um, get it in their mailboxes, hold on to it, keep it on their coffee table, put it in their bathrooms. I had a friend who apologized to me that CT was in her bathroom. And I said, don't apologize. I'm just happy that you have it out. So um, the reason that we're talking about it is because CT is obviously the sponsor of this podcast. And um, we can have you support CT, support us doing the podcast by going to ChristianityToday.com slash no none of those things this is not (laughs) hashtag not my job (laughs) yeah you got the url wrong orderct.com slash um, orderct.com slash the calling the calling yeah there we go to subscribe you get it for ten dollars and you can support the work that ct has been doing for 60 years and here's to another 60 years we'll talk to you again in 60 years my son atticus will be on this podcast telling you about his new flying car Alien Future Space Podcast. (laughs) Alien Future Space Podcast, CT120. But part of the work that it's doing is helping us reach more people with the podcast and feature more people, including the people that I'm getting to talk with down in Georgia and South Carolina and Florida as I'm driving around as our like remote correspondent. The latest person I got to talk to was um, a pastor in Atlanta who I've been following for a while, actually in kind of a funny way because his church used to be a block from my friend's house. And so I'd always drive by and be like, I heard a lot of great things about this church. You would just say that to yourself in the car? No. Like when you drove by? Yeah, I would always note that that's what the church was. I've heard a lot of good things about this <laughs> church. And then you just keep driving. Then you a turn the bit. podcast back a up. A little and... bit. Because my friend was like, that church is always doing something. <laughs> just like you would hope that your neighbor friend would say about yeah. your church. Like, What's different about cool stuff. That, those guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that church is Blueprint Church in Atlanta. It's founded by a guy named Dati Lewis. And then off of that church, John Anwuchekwa has founded another church in another neighborhood called Cornerstone. So I got to go to Cornerstone Church, see their new space, and talk with John just about the ministry they were doing. Super encouraging, humble pastor guy. Just one of those people that you're like, I'm glad you're doing what you're doing because you seem like the right person for it. Awesome. And here's my interview with John Anwuchekwa.
it's a Friday afternoon. I know a lot of pastors are off on Fridays. What would you be doing right now if not talking to me? Uh, I would be sitting at my house, hanging out, binge watching something on Netflix, most likely. What is your Netflix show right now? Oh, uh... There are there are quite a few shows. This is not on Netflix, but I'm re-watching season four of The Wire. Okay. The Wire is probably perhaps so good. Yeah, one of the greatest TV shows that has ever been made. And um all of the seasons are insightful, right? Uh season four is one that just like whenever I watch it, uh I can't get through that season without crying it's just yeah with it's so heavy though i can't no no it is because i watch like reality tv i watch top chef i watch i have to do something just as light as can be because the world is yeah yeah. so i it takes a lot for me to be like i'm gonna sit down and rewatch this again i'm like i'm glad i made it through it oh yeah no no i understand (laughs) yeah generally i'm an optimistic upbeat person with lots of smiles so stuff like that kind of yeah it doesn't have the same uh, uh, it doesn't make me despondent at okay. the end, but yeah, it's just good. It's just a good sobering reminder of yeah what our world is like. That season was made maybe ten years ago now, and it's like yeah, you know, as I think of the West End, like where we are right now, it's like yeah, I would imagine that the kids that are in school here. Uh, go through the same thing there. So it's just a, re, a, re, a reminder for me. So I'm here in the West End neighborhood of Atlanta. We're at Cornerstone Church, and I'm here with the lead pastor, John Onwuchekwa. I'm going to ah, say that's it again. perfect. Yeah. John Onwuchekwa. Yeah, no, Who taught you how to say it? Um, it looks like that. Phonetically. When you spell yeah. It. I most mean, people are I just guess the way. It's tricky when you see K's and W's, I right. think, but... It looks like it's it sounds, yeah, but, but people call you Jono. Jono, yeah. We always start with just the basic question, what is your calling? It would have to start with right now. I feel like, yeah, calling is a thing that is dynamic at times, so it changes. But right now, um, I'm called uh, to be a husband to my wife. Um, I'm called to pastor this church here in the West End preach the gospel faithfully to them and to train up other pastors to do the same thing. So as I think of my life and what my life is revolving around right now, those are the yeah three main things. Did you always imagine yourself um, with this being the end game, being no. a pastor? Nope. Where did that come from? No. Nope. It's funny because through the course of the years, you talk about this concept of calling and um, you run into, and there are a lot of kind of pastors that have this keen insight or this sense of I've known for years this is what I want to do I'm a visionary all of that that's not me at all so I'm I'm the least visionary person that has existed on the face of the earth um the way that I've always determined calling uh, has been very like more reactive than proactive, right? So the way that I've gotten here is that I've just responded to successive burdens that have been right in front of my eyes. And each time that I respond to a need and a burden that's right in front of me and just give my all and work there and try to meet that need, um, 
it seems like there's something else that comes and something else that comes. And so I feel like it's just been the past 14 years now for me of just responding to the needs that are right in front of me and where I find myself is where I feel like I'm called. So I want to talk a little bit about Cornerstone, the church that we're in now, because you came to Atlanta with an, another church yeah, plant. Yeah. So talk about how you started out. This is Blueprint, Char- Blueprint Church in the Char- Old Fourth Ward with yeah. Dottie Lewis that you guys co-founded that. So what was it like to leave a congregation that you co-founded? And then what Yeah, what led you yeah. into this direction? Yeah. So we're on the diff- um, a different side of the city yeah. here. So after college from 2006 to 2009, I linked up with the hottie to join in a church plant in Denton, Texas that they just started. In the course of time there, right, I was there in October of 07, the month before my wife and I were getting ready to get married. I told her, hey, sweetheart, we're going to be in Denton for the next 20 years. I feel like we're called here and we're just going to be here. We get married in November of 07. And then in December, I come back and have a conversation with her and I share, hey, sweetheart, I think God has called us to go to Atlanta to help plant this church, right? Um, And so what took place was we were there in Denton, and we just felt this burden of a lot of guys that were like us, who were African Americans that came from the context like we did, um, who got exposed to the God of the Bible. What would take place was we found that they were, at least the folks that we knew, felt ostracized as it came to church. They felt like they had to choose in between their theology and their culture. So the guys that we knew felt like, all right, if I uh, find myself in a place, and this is not a broad brushstroke to talk about all churches that are contextually geared towards guys that are like me, but the guys that, that we knew felt like, in my city, it's so hard. I can find a church that agrees with me theologically. The problem is... I'm going to be the only person that looks like me and talks like me there. I can find a church with full of folks that look like me and talk like me. The problem is uh, I'm going to be the only one that kind of holds the theology that I believe. And so we saw this like a cry for um, what people rejoice in in Acts 2, right? Yo, this is great because we get to hear the mighty works of God in our own tongue, right? That's what folks longed for, a place where they didn't have to choose um, and so that led us to to say, hey, what would it look like to plant a church that, in a sense, would be a blueprint for what it looks like to plant a church in a context like this? And so the name was as much of an aspiration as a prayer. God, if you give us the grace, we want to plant a church that could serve as a blueprint to train other pastors to send them out to do the same thing so that the guys that come up behind us don't have to have this same burden that we do. So moved here. And when we got here, my wife and I bought a house on the east side of town. And I said, all right, sweetheart, we bought a house that's big enough for when we add to our family, we don't have to move. And so it's like, all right, we're going to be here in East Atlanta Village for the next 20 years. This is it. This is the last stop. We're not going to prepare for anything else. And just, and I served there at the church for six years. And I never had an aspiration to go out and to plant just because I'm not the quote unquote visionary. So you think of the stereotype of the visionary lead guy that's going to lead with 
goal and vision and rally, right? So from a disc like a high D, a guy that likes new things, and I'm just not that guy. And so at Blueprint, you were teaching and preaching mostly? Teaching, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, Dahadi is a brother that I've known him and served with him in ministry uh, for the past 12 years, since I was 20, right? Wow. So it was great because I felt like me and him complimented one another so well, right? We would talk about it all the time. Like he was the guy that would take the next hill and I'm just the guy that would stay back and cultivate the land, right? Um, he was the guy that would create the roadways and I was the guy that would try to send the content on there. And so it felt like this is great, right? We're, we're at year five and six in the church plan and I'm like, all right, I didn't like the first part of the church plant because it's filled with all the stuff that I'm not good at. But now we have a church and I get a chance to just pastor. And so it's like, this is it. I don't have to raise a dime of support. I'm actually getting a raise at this church, right? Things are good. And then um, three years ago in 2013, my wife and I went to D.C. for four and a half months. Uh, I got a sabbatical from our church, just kind of the grind of all this stuff just really started to wear um, on me, and the church was gracious, and they granted me a four-and-a-half-month sabbatical. Quick plug here, um, a sabbatical is not something that should be optional for a pastor, right? It should be yeah, you written, hear that pastors, written in the bylaws <laughs> from day one in your church plant. So we are 14 months in our church plant, and right now we have four pastors and a pastor is on sabbatical right now for the month of July, and he's the third one to have one in year one. So, so you're saying you can't be too young to get From day one. Everybody that we talked to that has it now, what they've said was, the only reason why we have it now is because we got to year five, and things were about to fall apart, and we were burnt out, and we just had to do it. And so all the advice that we got was from day one, write it in. And what you find out is... The church will be fine. You're not going to break it. And so you're you're on the sabbatical in D.C. Yeah, in 2013. So I'm there for four and a half months. And it's just there where, um, yeah, after close to eight years of ministry, there were just things about my own mind and my heart and what I really wanted to do with my life that just started to become um, clear. I was just kind of refueled with a vision and a burden and a passion to what I want to do with my life and what I feel like God has uniquely um, called me to do. There were certain things that I desired, right? The, um, the simplicity of being able to pastor in the neighborhood that I work in, um, the simplicity that comes just from yeah, life with, without all of the like frills and all of the lights and all of the publicity and all of the traveling and trying to go elsewhere. Like I just longed for a simple existence where me and a group of my best friends could labor in obscurity and just put our heads down and work for the long haul. And we really wanted to be a part of a community that where the gospel um, was needed very tangibly in what we would think of as an extreme sense. The gospel is needed everywhere, but I really wanted to be in a place where everybody who lived in that place would look up and say, there's a real problem with the place that we live in. And um, So all of these were just 
prayers. And so my wife and I thought at the time, well, maybe God has called us to sell our house where we live and just to move closer to Blueprint, right? We we didn't live far. We lived four miles down the road, but it's like, hey, let's move into the old fourth ward and shrink our worlds. And that would mean a smaller house. That would mean us trying to move to a place where there is more crime than where we were, but we were really intent on I think this is what God has called us to do. Well, we come back, and uh, uh, one of my dear friends, Richard Mullen, who was also an elder at Blueprint Church at the time, who was my freshman roommate at Baylor. So when we moved to Atlanta uh, in 2011, Richard and a group of families had this heartbeat. We want to go to the one place in Atlanta that nobody else wants to go. And at that time, it was the West End and the Southwest Side. Gentrification was on the Northwest, Northeast, and Southeast. But on the Southwest Side, it was forgotten about. Boarded up homes on roads, drugs, prostitution, the whole nine. And so they're like, we want to go to a place where nobody else wants to go. So they moved here five years ago. um, And the work that they did here was just amazing, but it was nothing flashy. They were explicitly Christian, right? So they didn't hide the fact that that's what they were, but they were intentionally relational. So, I mean, he moved to a place where where, where in the course of yeah, eight months or the course of a few months, you know, he had stories of uh, seeing a man beat a woman in the back of the head with a rifle so hard that the gun was breaking, watching him get into the car, hit her as he left, and then drive off. And so they've got to sit in the street with her until the cops come. And then a few months later, they come out of the house and a car rips, whips into their cul-de-sac, and a guy gets thrown out of the car with no clothes on, and his hands and feet are duct taped, and they cut him out of the duct tape, and he says, man, some guys took me three days ago. Like, so these are the stories. And at first, I'm just like, man, that's crazy. And never did I think that I would be here. So we come back from the sabbatical. Stuff doesn't work out with my wife and I being able to move closer to the church. But in the providence of God, I mean, we we just come to the West End and just start to spend a bunch of time with Richard and Amanda and their crew. And what we see here is that uh, what was a missional community of Blueprint did what it is that we hoped that it would do. I mean, our aim is Blueprint. We wanted to plant churches in Atlanta, but the philosophy that we have is that, no, 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 you don't go in to plant a church. You go into a place and plant the gospel. And where the gospel bears fruit, then that gives us a clue as to where God wants to form this church. And so what took place was we saw the gospel bear fruit. We saw people converted. We saw the family of God that had created an amazing rapport with their neighbors. Uh, we saw just kind of the groundworks of what could be um, a church. And um, Richard pulled me aside one day and we just sat and talked. And his main thing was, man, for years, for the past few years, we've just been praying that God would surround us with a, a team. Um, that we really think that there needs to be a church here. And then, like, one thing that I love about Richard um, is that this is a guy that, like, he did all of the, the, the hard work. So my wife and I bought our house here, and we've lived on the West Side for about two years now. And, you know, it's still 
the hood, but it's not like it was when he came here. So he did all of the hard work. He laid all the groundwork. He plowed. He worked. He did all of the stuff. Um, and he had the humility to say, man, but when it comes to leading a church, he's like, I just don't feel like that's me. I want to be a part of the team, and I don't care who gets the credit. I just want to see this thing take place here. And so we started to talk about, all right, well, what would that look like to partner and to to see a church launched here? And we just sat and prayed, talked through things, shared it with the elders at Blueprint, and they were all thrilled and excited and on board. That's kind of how the groundwork was laid out to plant the church here. Um, and so it was just it, yeah, responding to a burden that the way... Oh, Sorry, you're going to ask a question. Oh, uh, that the way that I think of call is not sitting back and there's some grand vision that I get kind of in my dreams, right? Um, you know, in Acts 16, Paul gets the call to Macedonia where he has this dream and somebody calls them to help. And so he goes there to help. But then you look and up until Acts 20, Paul goes on this church planting spree. I mean, in Athens, Thessalonica, Corinth, Ephesus. And to the best that we know, he has no more dreams that say that you should go, but you just see a, a man that it it seems like there's four things that take place. And so this is just my grid of how I think through calling. Uh, need, burden, gifting, and opportunity, right? Uh, it seems like there's a need that he sees there. He's uniquely burdened for that need that's right in front of him. It seems as if he has the gifting to do something about the problem that he sees. And so he goes and he just starts, right? And uh, Athens, it, it, it says oh, he's so provoked by the intense idol worship that goes on. So what he does is he reasons every day and opportunity. What, what takes place there is he just so happens to find himself in a city that is consumed with, I just want to hear about the newest and the greatest and the best. And so people that hear this new thing give this guy the most amazing platform to share the gospel. And it's nothing that he could have strategized or planned his way into. And, and, and I just feel like, yeah, God provided an opportunity. Um, so where those four things line up, I make the assumption that that's where God is presently calling. And if by chance I've missed them, I know that yeah, God's gracious and kind enough to be able to reroute me. And speaking of, of Paul's strategy and approach to, to the idol worship that he saw, I noticed on your website that you list some of the spiritual beliefs within this neighborhood oh, and community. It's crazy. And there were like names on there that I didn't even know. What does it mean to know those theologies and be both in the community and then preaching to people in the community with um, what beliefs are kind of driving them yeah. outside of the gospel? Yeah. So the West End is kind of this like spiritual center. So you have Hebrew Israelites, five percenters, the nation of Islam, you have Muslims, you've got... Um, spiritualist, Egyptologist. To me, that's more intense than like cultural Christianity that like lots of pastors are dealing with Absolutely. in the suburbs. These are people who are very convicted by a belief system that's almost like outside of most people's understanding. Absolutely. Realm. But it's not like it's just those things. We could leave out of this room right now 
and walk for five minutes and touch the front door of 10 churches. There are 10 churches in a quarter of a mile block. So you add to that list nominal Christianity. Everybody's a Christian, but nobody's one in a historically black context right here. And you just find out at the end of the day, people are confused. And so like part of what that means for us is we've had folks that have been here for five years, right? My wife and I moved in here. We've been here for two years. um, And we kind of come here every day with just a sense of, I don't really know what I should know. And we just come with a real sense of inadequacy. And uh, we really have to just learn and study and know. And so it's just this kind of real sense of humility. Like, I know what God has called the church to do and to be. I know the truth of the gospel. I know that it works. We're eager to see how it works and how it is going to play out and how God might use our church um, here on the southwest side to bring it, like real tangible change that people can look to and say, not just that it was the group of folks here at this church, but man, it is undeniable that it's the gospel that changed the West End. That's our hope and that's our goal. And so we just want to display Jesus very, very clearly and make sure that we are being intentionally relational. Talk about what it means to be intentionally relational. I'm always curious and excited to hear the kinds of things pastors do to like hang out with people. So one of the reasons why my wife and I moved here to the West End is because uh, when we first moved to Atlanta in 09, we lived in a place called Buckhead, uh, which was kind of upscale, ritzy. We got a great deal on an apartment and we felt like, all right, this will be a good place for us to land. And we found ourselves in a place where everybody had everything that they needed. So relationships felt more like a bother, right? So folks would come in. I mean, we lived there for 18 months and it was incredibly hard. So we moved to a place called East Atlanta where we thought, all right, this will be better, right? Um, Yeah, it seems like, you know, folks here are normal people, but they still had more than they needed. And so, I mean, it was incredibly hard to get to know folks. So in the course of four years, we had two oak trees in the course of four years, right? So these acts of God in storms, these two oak trees in the span of these four years fell down on our street to where the roadway is blocked. Nobody can get in or out of our cold de sac. The power is off. We're trapped. And we're like, this is this is great. God used this so that we could get to know folks. And so we walked around and we would knock on all their doors and say, hey, we're getting ready to, to walk to the store and we're going to come back. And it was two of those acts of God. And it was still incredibly difficult to build friendships there. Just hard, right? The beautiful thing about the West End is that you live in a context where people don't have the illusion that they don't need anybody else. So the folks that are poor or without, they know that they need somebody else to survive. The people that come in here that have means, they've moved into a place where the crime may be a little bit more um, than the rest of Atlanta. So what takes place is there's a community of of folks there that had formed and they look out for one another and they care for one another. So community was a thing 
that was already here. So we didn't have to like come in and say, hey, we're going to throw a back to school bash or a barbecue or we're going to set up all of these uh, events as a church, right? The neighborhood association meeting is packed every month. And so what we say as a church is make sure that people like make sure that you are there and know that it's going to take you six months being there before people start to even ask you your your name. But just right. Like like do those things. I think sometimes we so want to jump into meaningful relationships right off the bat and you forget that nah, meaningful relationships are a byproduct of what seem to be a bunch of meaningless interactions. You string together enough of those in a row. My wife and I were at home this past week and we had uh, some friends of ours that live up the road, Stephen and Bree. They called us and they said, hey, you know, we're going to have some some dinner and yeah, food, you know, drinks and just talk and we'd love for y'all to come to come to the house. So Chandra and I go there and then our friends uh, Nana and Ebony are there. And then there's another girl, Amber, that's there. It's the first time that we met her. And then Calvin and his wife come over. And then somebody else comes over, Gabe. All of them live in the West End. They all walked over to Steve's house. And we got there at 7.30. And from 7.30 to 11.30, we sat on the front porch and we ate. And we just talked. And we talked about everything from the tensions of race that went on in our country to sports, to Christianity, to philosophy, to just kind of the whole nine. Like, we just got there and talked. And then at the end of the day, the people that we didn't know, we exchanged phone numbers and we went home and it was great. But that's a unique thing, right, that goes on here in the West End. So that takes place not just with us, all the, the time. Like, that's what takes place in the context that we live in. And so we just tell people that are part of our church, do those things, right? As a church, there's, as Christians, there's certain things that God mandates for us to do as a church, right? right? We're to gather together to worship God. So we want to do that. Um, we're to hold one another accountable. And as far as the structures that we set up here at our church, we are, I think more than most, incredibly light on the meetings that we mandate here, because at the end of the day, we think ah, it's more important that the people that are, are part of our church have margin so that they can go and be a part of all of these. Things. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Things. That was an interesting observation about relationship and friendship in places where people don't feel like 
uh, feel like they need other people versus people in a position of privilege who might have the misconception that they don't. And I've seen that just in my small group as we've been reaching out to neighbors who there's people who don't have cars, which like if you, if you grow up in middle class, upper middle class, everyone you know has a car. So the idea that, oh, we get to give these people rides all the time because they always need a ride somewhere. It's like, oh, that makes sense now that we hang out all the time because people need rides. People need food. They don't get a chance to have a home cooked meal. It was an interesting to see how much easier in some way it becomes to relate to people who are in a lot of ways not like us that we thought, but because there's a need there we get opportunities to come in and meet it absolutely so what takes place is there's less of a bait and switch that's to take place there's less of a all right there's less of us sitting in a room saying all right guys how are we really gonna get to know our neighbors so that at the end of the day we have a chance to share with them the gospel and the most important thing to us like the structures are there neighborhood association meetings go there you can get involved and serve on a committee there right so right now you know in the uh one that we have here in the west end i'm the committee chair for the education committee and the end of the day it was just a there's a need there I'm in school getting a doctorate of education, so I guess I'm qualified to lead the committee here. They need somebody to serve. I can help out with that. And I have a church full of folks that I can guilt to come alongside and to help me. Um, so it's like, why wouldn't we do that? And through that, I've gotten a chance just to meet and to talk to so many people that I never would have gotten a chance to. And so just by meeting that need. So, yeah. You've brought up your wife a few times. How does she play into um, your faith journey, your life as a pastor, your sense of calling, and how do you work that out together? Mm. So my wife is, she's great. Her name's Chandra. This fall, we will have been married for nine years. So when we first met, um, our friendship and relationship revolved around ministry. From the time that I met her, it was a year and a half before we started dating and we were just friends and she was really involved in ministry, discipling girls and all of that. Um, And our friendship was built around that to the point where when I moved to Denton and got to see her firsthand, I was sold, right? So, you know, I took her to Subway and sat down with her and I just shared with her how I felt and that I'd want to date her. And from the time that she said, yes, that we were going to date, I knew, all right, I've I've just got to save up for a ring. And I just saw her as somebody that would really serve as a springboard, right? So it's like, we both want to do the same thing. And I think that we can do more together than we can with us not being together. Um, And so every move that we've made, every move that we've made in our life, every house that we've chosen, every city that we've lived in or moved to, uh, has been primarily to plant the gospel in a context that needs it. And so that's just the, the grid that we think through. We were ready early on to have children. And in God's providence, nine years later, um, still don't. Um, unexplained infertility to being involved in the adoption process for four years and just had horror stories of 
about what took place. Um, and so that was just a rough time. But one of the things that I love about my, my wife is uh, we've always done our best to try to be responsible in the homes that we've lived in, but to have more space than we need. And I mean, so we've been married eight years. Uh, we've probably lived by ourselves, like just me and her, without anybody else in our home for maybe two out of those eight years. The other six years, it's a we have space, we don't have kids, but how would God have us steward the strength that we would spend on kids to pour into somebody else? And so we just invited folks, college students, people that we really wanted to see grow to come and live with us. And I'm an extrovert, so I loved it. My wife is an introvert, and so she carried kind of more of the strain of that, but she's just been, I mean, just just a model and an example of what yeah, Christianity looks like. And um, she's somebody that's a truth teller, and so I can always count on her to challenge me to really speak the truth in love to me, but to speak it very, very plainly so there's no mistaking how she feels about where we are, and um, there's no way that we would be here to be able to plant this church uh, without the incredible role that she played. I know that as a woman, I'm about to turn 30, that once you get to that age, people start and kind of don't stop asking you, well, why don't you have children yet? Does it happen to you as a man and a pastor too? All the time. Every time I meet somebody. Every single time without fail. Every time. In all contexts or especially in a Christian context? Every context. There's not one place, right? Uh, You know, folks see that I'm married. They see that I'm older, and the thought is, uh, hey, tell me about your wife and kids. And it's just, right, because it's so normal. And, I mean, it's just a thing where it's like, again, call it. Like, I got married when I was 23, and I've always wanted to be a father. And I had, you know, plans and goals of how my kids were going to do this. But it's like, and that's that's why I say calling calling is dynamic because, you have to factor in the providence of God and that there are just kind of sometimes where, um, hey, you know, I don't think this is a punishment for some sin that I did in the past. I think it's God providentially saying right now is not the time for y'all and us saying, how are we going to leverage the freedoms that we have instead of lamenting the privileges or the gifts that we don't have. And so we constantly think of how do we leverage the freedoms that we have right now? You're a, an evangelical, a pastor, an African-American man. And so you're in a position where I assume people ask you all the time within the church what for your advice about what to do about race and diversity and racial tensions. I wanted to ask, are there questions that you get tired of hearing, and at at a certain point, does it become exhaustive? In recent months, not so much. I used to be incredibly frustrated with certain questions about race and what to do, and um, primarily, uh, my frustration primarily came from those who were part of the majority context, right? And there was a bitterness and an angst in my heart, and I just felt like it's not my responsibility to talk and shit and just real just real bitter and sinful because of just being so fatigued by it 
I don't know what it's been about recent months that uh, that God has done to just kind of start to soften my heart and to to remind me that like ignorance, not knowing, like that should never be an indictment on somebody. And just to know, like, and I talked to a few guys about this last night. I'm not really sure where we are as a country, but one of the things that I felt is that at least in my own experience, it just feels like the majority context seems a little more willing and open to have the conversation now. It's just like, all right, if people are sponges that are ready to hear, then I just want to be sure that I'm trying to guide them as best as I um, can. So questions don't frustrate me. So there's no question right now that just kind of makes me, I'm tired of that one. Uh, The thing that gets me exhausted are statements that are masked as questions. So somebody asks a question and then says, well, because I think this, it's like, you made your point very clear. Thank you for that. Um, If you have a question, let's talk. And And on the other side of that, as a pastor to African-Americans in your community, African-Americans in your church, I guess, what is it? What what is your message, your calling, your your feeling for people who know firsthand the hurt and fear that's kind of like in the conversation everywhere else that this this isn't a concept for them. So let me just kind of share with you what it was like with my church last last week. So our church, though it's in the hood here, it's diverse, right? So last week I have conversations with folks at our church that are African Americans that are incredibly frustrated and mad and angry at white people in general, right? So they're there in our church. I have, or we have a white police officer in our church that's married to a black woman that just had a black son or or a mixed race son that is, as long as he's, he's gonna be perceived as a black male. And there's part, there's perspectives that I get from him And then there's parts where he just really doesn't get it. I've got an African-American cop with three beautiful black boys. And so he's like, there's a a tension that I feel that I don't really know what to do with because I'm a cop and I'm a black man. I am, at times, scared of the cops when I don't have on the blue, but then I'm in the blue and I'm scared of what may go on. We've got 60-year-old white couples who uh, don't don't really grasp the concept of why would you be scared of the police, right? And so it's just, uh, and then we have more progressive millennial whites that are a part of our church, and they're like, I don't know what to say. Um, and so it's like, uh, you know, the general statement that you want to be sure to remind the church as a whole is, There are two times in the book of Acts that you see the church dropping everything that they're doing and saying, we got to take care of this right now. And it's not when terrorists attack. It's not when persecution comes from the outside. It's not when religious freedom is threatened. It's in Acts 6 and Acts 15 when Unity in the church is threatened, right? So so in Acts 6, you see the Greek w- widows 
saying, hey, we have a complaint. All right, there's Jew widows, and they seem to get the, their food on time, but we aren't getting food, right? It's not this overt racism. They're like, there seems to be an apathetic oversight, and they cry, right? The complaint is Greek lives matter too, right? right? And what the church does? They shut down everything. So, right, Peter and the rest of them pull together the whole church and say, this is a big thing, so big that we're going to pull y'all in and talk. And, and then they say, y'all as a whole church, the whole church needs to be involved in this. Y'all choose from among you seven men to be able to uh, make this, this thing take place. And from the, the best that we know, all the names, they seem to be Greek names. And so the church comes alongside and they work and they make sure that there is unity in the church. Acts 15, I mean, it's the same thing right there. There's a group of folks that are trying to make it seem as if you have to be Jewish to embrace this Christianity or you have to submit to those laws. So they all come and they say, no, that's not the case at all. And you have the Jerusalem council. And so, um, yeah, so the uh, message to, to the church as a whole is, hey, y'all, at the end of the day, the church really is the hope of the world. This is how the gospel is going to be made visible and tangible in the world that we live in. The world that we live in is going to tear itself apart. The world that we live in has a shallow definition of peace. The definition of peace in the world that we live in is not fighting. Cease fire. That's peace. That's not peace in... That's not the peace that we have. The peace that we have is former foes are calling each other family. That's so much better. That's what our world needs, and that's what they want. And do you know what's going to keep our world from being able to get that? Is if we as a church, with the diverse perspectives that we have, can't unify in a time like this. But do you know what will be so attractive to the world out there? is if even in the midst of this time, even if we don't come away completely understanding the perspective of somebody else, the fact that we all can still say we're family. So the main thing that we share with our church is there has to be a unity that we work toward and strive towards that does take hard work. Not everybody listening probably would have heard of your church necessarily, but I bet many of them have heard of Trip Lee, yeah. who's a staff member on your church. Absolutely. We were talking off mic before just about some of the connections you have yeah. with Christian hip hop. Yeah, so I went to school at Baylor my sophomore year. A girl that I went to school with had a little brother. There was this concert at the school, and I did a poem at the beginning, right, a spoken word piece. Trip came up and rapped, and then his sister Chelsea said, Hey, I want you to meet my little brother. And so I'm a sophomore in college in 03. Trip is a sophomore in high school. And we talked there, exchanged phone numbers, and became good friends. Uh, and just through the course of the year, I mean, he was somebody that was like-minded that I just saw, um, yeah, we shared that same heart. So yeah, we've kept in touch through the years. He was in my wedding. My wife and I would go down and stay at their house and hang with them. Part of the reason why I went to D.C. for the sabbatical that I was on is because Tripp and his wife were there, and so we were great friends. And, you know, we said, hey, if there's ever a chance that we can get to the same city and do work together, that we're going to pray. So when I knew that we were getting ready to plant this church, my mindset has 
always been, if you're with the right people, the place that you go doesn't matter. If you're not with the right people, the place that you go doesn't matter. So before we kind of thought through, all right, skill sets and what could guys do, I just thought, all right, we want to be here. We want to see this acorn of the gospel turn into an oak tree here in the West End. Who are the guys that I want to grow old with? And I called, you know, I talked to Richard, Tripp, and Mo, and we're, we're, and we're like, let's do this. And so we all bought homes in the West End. So all of us own homes in the West, so we can walk to one another's cribs, and it just kind of feels like being in the fifth grade again, where all of your best friends like are, are just a bike ride away. So yeah, so Met Trip, the rest of the guys, I mean, what most of the folks don't know is that Reach uh, Records and kind of that the people that most would see as like the face of Christian hip hop, it was just crazy how it was like stuff that took place that started in Denton, Texas. So I met Tadashi, I think when I was a sophomore in college, um, he went to school for a time with my brother, and that's how I met him. Cray was in Denton with Tadashi, with the group of folks that uh, had the church plant out there that helped to launch Blueprint Church. So all of those guys were there, a guy by the name of William Branch, who many would see as like a pioneer of Christian hip hop, was in Dallas at the time getting his THM at DTS. Dehadi started the uh, campus mint industry in Denton. Ben Washer, the CEO of Reach Records, was in Denton. And Ben worked at Kids Across America, where a bunch of us did. And so it's this this just really like small world of a bunch of guys that knew one another. Um, and it's just crazy to to just look back, I mean, 10 years and to, to be reminded of where we were 10 years ago. It was just a group of people. I don't know if any of them had the aspirations to be where they are right now. It's just, hey, there's a need right here. How do we meet this need where we, uh, where we are? And, and it's just crazy to think of what God did in the past 10 years. I love um, in my job that I get to interview and talk to people yeah. across evangelicalism, including people who have some degree of name recognition or celebrity or fame, but the, the bottom line is that they belong to a local church somewhere, right? Oh, like they're doing something to serve or to belong or submit or be in a small group or go to their pastor for advice. And that seems like such a great common denominator that we have as the church is that we all have these congregations and some of them, even small church plants just getting started, that this is that this is where their heart belongs. Absolutely. It's great to just to be able to see that and to have guys like, you know, to have guys like a Tadashi or Trip, you know. Alex Medina, or yeah, so guys like that there that people from the outside would look in and be impressed by all of the stuff that they get to do out there. And one of the things that I love about Trip um, is I just feel like he more than most uh, prioritizes the local church so much, and not just because he's he's a pastor, but before he was a pastor, he he saw so much value. In the local church, um, that there there are a lot of things and a lot of opportunities 
that he could have taken to catapult his career that he's like, I'm just going to have to pass on that because it would betray my commitment to the church that I'm a part of. And I just think for yeah, for a guy like him to be able to model that is just something that's awesome and amazing. And I hope that more up and coming aspiring artists would look at things the way that he does. So. And when you look at over the years, the churches that you've been a part of, is there a, a through line of your kind of favorite part of ministry of something that's just always had your heart in terms of an affection for um, where your appreciation lies? What do you value most about yeah. the local church? Yeah. Uh, for me, it's just been a sense of authentic and purposeful community. Um, I think in every church that I've been a part of in my adult life, um, you know, I just think that God has been incredibly gracious to me and has allowed me to be led by and to serve with leaders that are humble above all else, that value transparency and authenticity. And I think it just kind of bleeds down into the life of the church where, um, yeah, you know, every church that I've been at, there's been knocks of things that we could have done better. But the thing that I love is that kind of the through line has been, you know, folks will come in and they'll critique or whatever, this and that. And they'll say, man, but one thing that y'all do have is like, y'all are really family, like family in a way that I've never seen before. And I'm just like, hey, give me almost any other critique that you want as, as long as that's what you see. Yeah, I count myself to be incredibly blessed to be able to be a part of that. If you could reverse back um, and give advice to a younger version of yourself, what would you tell him knowing what you know now? We talk about prayer, and I think so often it's a like foregone conclusion. And I remember um, six weeks before we were getting ready to plant this church, uh, I get a phone call and my 32-year-old brother passed. And that just kind of put me at a place where you know, and the only way that I can refer to it is, uh, I don't know what I was doing before then, but after that point, I felt like I was praying. Granted, I mean, yeah, I, I know I was praying. I was a Christian. I was saved and I would talk to God, but something changed and I felt more of the sense of my dependence on, um, God. And so I would tell him, Hey man, pray. Um, the next thing I think that I would say to my young, younger self is aim for faithfulness and don't be distracted by fruitfulness. You can have much fruitfulness at the expense of faithfulness and, it, and even at the expense of your own soul. Just be faithful. Just put your head down and get to work. Don't worry about what people think of you. Don't worry about admiration or numbers or just all of these things, just be faithful where God has called you. Don't be so concerned and dis and distracted. I felt like, you know, one of the gifts and the curses very transparently of, you know, being friends with, you know, some of the guys that we talk through is you see, you know, just the great things that they get to do and you see kind of the pathway that they've been on. You know, our hearts are flawed and mine is uh, has a unique bent towards wanting those things. And I became so distracted early on just trying to keep up. And it's just, 
be faithful. And then the last thing is just yeah, slow down, work for the long haul. Um, yeah, be content with working with no immediate fruit. Um, eventually, things hit. Yeah, God's going to do what he will do. So just yeah, just work hard right now and know that substantial change takes a long time. So work hard now. Expect to see some change when you get some grays in your hair or lose your hair. All right. Thanks for listening to The Calling. That was John Anuchekwa, who's the pastor at Cornerstone Church in Atlanta. You can find him on Twitter at J-A-W-N-O. That's John O. Remember to rate and review this show, to subscribe and tell your friends to subscribe. You can find us on Twitter at CT Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook um, as CT Podcast as well. This podcast is produced by Cray Allred. It's hosted by Richard Clark. And the music you're listening to is played by Lee Rosevier, used under Creative Commons License 4.0.